This is a Federal News Network podcast. Stalled Senate confirmations won't stop the Veterans Affairs Department from consolidating its real estate. Now, federal employee unions are calling on senators to not advance the nominees to the Asset and Infrastructure Review or Air Commission. Commission is supposed to review VA's recommendations to close some of its medical facilities and build other ones. But the VA says it can get some things done without the commission altogether. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has the latest. And let's just review here, Jory, what VA wants to do and how that would have to come about. The Veterans Affairs Department recently submitted recommendations to this currently non-existent air commission to basically close about three dozen VA medical centers, think hospitals, and build new construction in their place for about half of those. These recommendations reflect changes in the veteran demographic, that they live much less in the Northeast and they live more in the South and Southeast. New facilities in this plan reflect that demographic change and also a reflection that VA needs to provide more long-term care and less inpatient hospital care. All right. And so why are the federal employee unions, we're talking about AFGE principally at VA, they don't like these recommendations and therefore they don't want the commission to even be seated to pass judgment on them? Is that what's going on? That is an accurate summation of AFGE's perspective on it. They see VA closures as VA employees being relocated so far that they basically don't have a job that's tenable for where they live. And so they see this as a threat to the VA workforce. Their primary means of going after this commission is to pressure senators to not confirm commissioners to this air commission. They have held a number of rallies at this point in New York, Massachusetts, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, South Dakota, and Washington state, all states that would be impacted by the VA's recommendations in their current incarnation. And they've picked up some powerful allies. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says that he is opposed to two closures of facilities in Manhattan and Brooklyn. And the House Oversight and Reform Committee chairwoman, Carolyn Maloney, is also opposed to closures in New York. Schumer, in particular, is one of the senators that has a lot of pull in who gets brought up to the Senate for a floor vote. And so we've yet to see these commissioners advance in any real way. And at one of the hearings recently, the president of the AFGE, Everett Kelly, spoke. What did he say? We actually heard from him last month at AFGE's annual legislative conference, and he is himself a veteran, and he says that the plan doesn't serve veterans. This commission is designed to close VA facilities, and that means that veterans will not have the care that they need. That means that the veterans will not have beds to sleep in uh, when they have uh, issues, and that is a disgrace for our country, if you ask me. All right, so he's trying to stop the commission, which in turn would stop the plan of VA, but as you're reporting, Jory, the VA says even without an air commission, it can do some things. That's right. VA Secretary Dennis McDonough shed a little bit more light on this Plan B to reporters recently. He said that if the air commission doesn't move forward as planned, the Mission Act, which created the air commission in the first place, still requires the VA to conduct four-year reviews of its real estate needs in each of its regional healthcare markets. And so McDonough says that you know, even if the air commission doesn't go forward as planned and there's a limited timeline under this whole process, he says that no matter which way you go about it, the VA still has outdated medical facilities that it needs to update. So what happens if there's no commissioners? I think if there's no commissioners, there's still a statute. Uh, we still have these needs. And so we'll be looking at what our options are there. Um, but we'll continue to communicate with the workforce uh, 
and with you all and with our veterans to make sure that everybody understands precisely the decisions we're going to make. None of these decisions will be made behind closed doors. That's been my, my principal concern, frankly, since I arrived here. All right. So they can move ahead on some fronts. And at this point, then, it's kind of an impasse. There are no commissioners affirmed. There's no commission. And therefore, VA is just kind of in limbo. That's basically how it would be. Yeah, uh, the commission is one link in the chain here. At some point, the commission would come up with its own recommendations that would then go to Congress and the president. President Joe Biden, in the circumstances, would have the ultimate thumbs up or thumbs down under that trajectory. So they'll have their 75-year-old hospitals crumbling for the next 75 years. And meanwhile, what's the latest on the electronic health record, which they have been trying to move on for several years now? That could be its own conversation unto itself here. McDonough has recently been to the Mann Grandstaff VA Medical Center in Spokane, Washington. That was the first go-live of this new EHR. And he said that he heard some specific concerns about safety. We've heard numerous reports of outages for the new EHR at all of its go-live sites. And this is a concern for the House and VA committees. Uh, They have some concerns. They want to see this uh, halted until the bugs are worked out here. Something that we saw first reported from the spokesman review, they said that Cerner actually has credited the VA under its contract because it hasn't been able to keep the EHR at enough uptime with all these downtime outages that they are actually giving the VA some money back here under its contract. All right. So that one lurches forward also. And gosh, there's been a lot of VA news you've been reporting on, Jory. Let me ask you about the backlog of veterans records at NARA at the National Archives. Yeah. So in this circumstance, the Technology Modernization Fund has given the National Archives and Records Administration, in this case, $9 million to digitize the veteran records that it holds at its facility in St. Louis. That's where all these paper records reside. And that was a particularly tricky problem for the past two years when these facilities were locked down and were only paper-based. So now NARA has the funding to digitize these records, make them more accessible for veterans who need these records in order to get VA benefits. McDonough did say that for what it's worth, veterans who are waiting on these records, they can actually contact the VA and they can fast track this process to get those records if they are waiting. All right. And finally, I wanted to ask you about some new veteran suicide prevention measures. They've, they've got a challenge out on this. They do. A $20 million challenge, in fact. It's called Mission Daybreak, and it's a competition of sorts. VA is looking at AI and automation solutions to handle its call volume, which is a really somber thing when you think about it. The VA handles about 2,000 calls a day to its veterans crisis line, uh, has to answer those calls within 10 seconds or less. And so that is a lot of demand for its workforce to keep up with. AI and automation is supposed to help augment that workforce that is answering those calls. One other thing that will open the floodgates a little bit more, the Federal Communications Commission this summer will make 988 dial out to suicide crisis lines in general, and there's a way that veterans can be routed specifically to the VA to feel these calls. And so the VA is asking for people to submit their proposals by July 8th, and this is the first of many steps along this process in which they can get prize money for the VA to actually facilitate these ideas. But 988 will be a national number for anyone in the country contemplating suicide, and then there will be a special routing behind that number to VA 
Yes, that's correct. It serves uh, anyone in in crisis across the country, but there's a specific pipeline for veterans as well for 988. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks for that roundup. Thanks, Tom. And check out all of his stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy. His name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there are so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Visor, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult, young, 
you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating, Um, you know, from historical to current uh, current times. I just it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so. I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.